Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. So we continue now with our series in the second half of world history with podcast number 24. In podcast 23, we looked at the origins of the Second World War under the umbrella concept of territorial acquisition. We recall the Treaty of Versailles opposite the goals of Adolf Hitler. We saw the way that he had reclaimed the Tsar Basin in the Ruhr Valley and the fact that there was not one shot fired, no international repercussions. He then annexes the country of Austria and parts of Czechoslovakia. At this point, the international community was getting concerned with the goals of Adolf Hitler. So Neville Chamberlain, the prime minister of Great Britain, stepped in and formed what became known as the Peace in Our Time document of the Munich Agreement. And that, of course, was the idea that there would be no more aggression, yet at the same time, Neville Chamberlain sold out the Czechoslovakians by giving Adolf Hitler the Sudetenland, now sealing the entire country under Hitler's control. Winston Churchill's response, of course, was the famous line, that, quote, England has been offered a choice between war and shame. She has chosen shame, and we will get war, end quote. With that, Hitler double-checked his non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union, and the hardware began to fly on September 1st, 1939, with the global realization of what became known as Blitzkrieg, or Lightning War. We then briefly looked at how quickly he was able to invade England, invade Poland. At the same time, then two weeks later, when the leader of the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin, invaded Poland from the east, tearing tearing that country in half, with the spoils, of course, going to both of those dominating and invading countries. We then stopped with as Hitler began what became what was known as Operation Case Yellow, which was the invasion of France. So on May 10th, as we continue on now in our 24th podcast on our series of the second half of world history, we look at the way Hitler in Operation Case Yellow invaded the Benelux countries as well as France, making and taking so much land and making so many significant advances territory-wise that stunned not only France, but the British and others in the international community as well. How could that possibly have happened? How did Hitler invade France so quickly when, in fact, France had a state-of-the-art defensive mechanism that cost them millions and millions of dollars that was set up to make sure that a future Germany never could invade France? And that is what became known as the Maginot Line. I strongly encourage you, my students are, are mystified, truly, to their, their, 
beyond surprise when I show them pictures. And obviously, these are only drawings. That's all we're going to be able to get. But drawings of the Maginot Line, when I bring that up for my students to see. And again, I'll spell that for, for my listeners. That's M-A-G-I-N-O-T. So it's M-A-G-I-N-O-T, the Maginot Line. I encourage you to look that up on Google. Click on images, and you will see many drawings on there of truly a state-of-the-art defensive weapon. This was... A trench, basically. A trench that's beyond on steroids. The Maginot Line was a long, long, continuous line that truly was a trench by definition. But it was so advanced with so much money uh, poured into it that it had different levels. It had clinics. It had hospitals. It actually had movie theaters. It had gymnasiums rudimentary form of air conditioning it had heat it had everything that the french soldiers would need if they ever had to stand up against german aggression and stand up against german aggression they did hoping to completely seal off any attempt by adolf hitler to militarily invade france when in fact hitler had overrun that line in a matter of hours the Maginot Line, for all the years that it took the French to build it and the millions of dollars, put up nothing more than a bare token resistance to the onslaught of Adolf Hitler. But wait a minute, you say. Chris, you just said that that was state-of-the-art, top of the line. Oh, and it was. It was state-of-the-art and top of the line for the last war, but not for this one. For World War I, that was top of the line. But that way, because that was the war to end all wars, meaning the victors, again, generally, as I've said before in prior podcasts, the winners of conflicts generally lock their eyes in the rearview mirror and prepare for the future by only looking at the past and locked on the past. Meanwhile, the losers, they're forced to look out the windshield. Therefore, they're embracing every new thing that comes at them. So while Adolf Hitler is embracing the new technology or the new tactic called Blitzkrieg, France was putting all of its money and eggs into the basket of a war that was never going to be fought that way again, the Great War, which will now be known as World War I. It was a stunning defeat for France as she had very little resistance set up and prepared for an aggressive Germany should it ever have broken the Maginot Line, which again it did within a matter of hours. The entire German war machine was turned loose on France in a matter of days, was pushing the French out of their capital, Paris, and either south towards Spain or to the coast of the English Channel. And that's when, for reasons that are not 100% understood, even in modern times, that's when the entire German war machine was abruptly stopped at the command of Adolf Hitler. Please know that every major tactical and strategic decision, much less decisions in grand strategy, of course, which is another name for foreign policy, all of these decisions have been made so far in the war by Adolf Hitler himself. 
And I imagine there could be some of my listeners that disagree with that because Hitler was not a good strategist. He was not a good uh, tactician, etc. I have had World War II soldiers tell me to my face that Adolf Hitler is greatly overestimated in modern times. Rather, just the opposite is true. But it wasn't my place, especially with one particular veteran who was in his 90s, who fought against Hitler, literally, physically, he fought against the Nazi forces. And when he wanted to belittle the Germans and say that they shouldn't even bear mention in my classes, I wasn't about to refute him. That man fought the Nazis. I'm only talking about them. But I can't ignore all the volumes of information and research that has been done that, again, certainly a man to hate Adolf Hitler, but we can't underestimate their, unfortunately, the man's ability to truly carry out his political and military objectives. As a result, the German armed forces were ordered to stop just outside the outskirts of a place called Dunkirk, France. When I mentioned Dunkirk, the city of France, right on the east coast and the north and the uh, English coast of the English Channel and the western coast of, of course, of France, in the northern part of the country, when the name Dunkirk, D-U-N-K-I-R-K, some of my listeners may put another word with that, saying, "Yeah, I've heard Dunkirk before, but I, I don't know." where I've heard it, or in kind of what connotation I heard it. If you've heard of the name Dunkirk before, chances are you've heard of it because of what it became known for, which was truly a miracle. It became known as the miracle of Dunkirk, or the miracle at Dunkirk, France. And the reason it was considered a miracle is because when Hitler ordered the entire war machine to come to an abrupt halt, the remaining French soldiers and soldiers from the Benelux country, the Polish that had been run out, the Danes, as well as the British that had come over and attempt to try to defeat Hitler and his forces, they were surrounded completely by the German military. The Panzer tanks had their turrets pointing right at them. The Luftwaffe was strafing from up above. The, the Kriegsmarine, the German Navy, was huddled out there on the English Channel, fully within view of over 300,000 Allied soldiers that were certain they were going to meet their death in a matter of hours, when in fact the exact opposite happened. That's the reason it became known as the miracle of Dunkirk, because under the course of nighttime, Churchill recruited, Churchill, Prime Minister of Great Britain, recruited any and every available sailing craft he could to send over to the shores of Dunkirk because of messages coming through that Allied soldiers were stranded there. And Hitler allowed almost every one of those soldiers to eventually pull out, leave the continental coast of Europe, and retreat back to Great Britain. That's again the reason why it was considered a miracle, 300,000 escaping when certainly they were prepared to meet their death. Since that point, as angry as Hitler's top commanders were for not letting them finish off the job and wipe out those remaining 300,000 plus soldiers, 
Debate immediately ensued as to why Hitler did this. Hitler, by this point, was a man that for the past several years now was not used to getting questions, was not used to getting the, hearing the question or the command, explain yourself. Hitler never did. The only thing that we can surmise is that Hitler himself believed in the idea that in the 20th century, killing now was so much easier than it ever had been before in human history. That a dead soldier is simply that, just one less dead enemy soldier. But a psychologically defeated soldier that's allowed to retreat back into their base camp can become like a cancer within that camp. And that defeated soldier will actually do more harm to their own and actually help the enemy. That's all that historians can surmise as to the rationale on why Hitler allowed those 300,000 soldiers to escape. The other corollary to that is that it could have been a goodwill gesture towards Great Britain and the allies themselves that clearly now were ganged up against him to what avail or was not going to do much good for the, for the next several years, as we know. But it could have also been part of a goodwill gesture because immediately upon the fall of France, Hitler then turned towards Great Britain and demanded their surrender and the giving up of their military aircraft and watercraft. Had Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, been in office, we don't know what he would have done. If we base his possible actions on his prior actions, he might well have agreed to it. But you see, Neville Chamberlain was run out of office faster than the plague once Hitler tore up symbolically and literally the Munich Agreement when he invaded France the prior September. Neville Chamberlain, who arguably was destined to become one of the greatest statespeople of the 20th century, immediately fell off that horse into almost hatred by his own people for misreading the ambition of Adolf Hitler. The man that succeeded Neville Chamberlain was none other, of course, than Winston Churchill, where Churchill's response translated was essentially or something to the effect of go to hell. There is no way Great Britain is going to surrender anything and help the German war machine. That's the reason why Adolf Hitler would then have to turn and begin what became known as Operation Sea Lion, which would be the eventual conquest and the successful invasion of the proper British Isles. And more about that in a moment. I want to finish off first what's going on there in France after it had fell to Adolf Hitler. Myth has crept up to believe that Hitler only conquered part of France because he didn't have the time or the efforts available to conquer the whole country. As I explained in a prior podcast, so more of a recap now, Hitler had no intention on ever occupying all of France. He didn't need the interior of France. All he needed was the coast that bordered the English Channel all the way down to the Pyrenees Mountains that separates France from Spain, all he needed was that and then Paris proper. And that's the reason why Hitler 
personally went down into France, a country that he truly hated. He wanted to step in Paris proper. He wanted to walk under the Arch de Triomphe to more or less symbolically show the French that I, the Germans, are the ones that are triumphing over you. The symbolism was not lost on a single French citizen. They realized the agony of the future now having to be forced to fly the German flag. To add insult to their injury, Hitler also demanded something that arguably he really didn't demand of any of the leaders of the other countries that he had successfully militarily invaded. He wanted France to surrender. He wanted France to sign up surrender papers showing allegiance to Germany and recognizing their superiority. This was done in Paris proper, which surprised some French leaders. They thought their rear ends would be dragged to Berlin in order to sign it there. No, Hitler wanted none of those, none of those French people to dare step foot in his prized country or his beloved Berlin. No, no, no. The French were going to stay right where he conquered them. Rather, in a stroke of brutal, brutal embarrassment to the French people, he forced them to sign the surrender papers on nothing less and nothing else than the armistice rail car that the Germans surrendered on back at the end of World War I. The symbolism was unbelievably powerful. The fact that Hitler took time and effort on his own to come to Paris to have that armistice rail car that was in a French museum, he blew the wall out of the museum, connected up the rail car to a steam engine, and brought that rail car to the place of his choosing there in Paris, where he forced the Germans on and then forced them to surrender the pay, the, their country. After they were finished signing, they were thrown off the train similarly the way the Germans were after they surrendered in World War I. Then that same rail car that was once in a French museum just hours before would be taken into Germany to be put in their own museum of Hitler's choosing and creation and creating. So again, just this, this symbolism as well as the humiliation that the French felt. If there's any silver lining to that, it wasn't lost on the new prime minister of Great Britain, Winston Churchill. He saw perhaps a little bit of a crack in that unbelievably protective facade that Hitler had. He wasn't sure about it, but he wondered if in that surrender ceremony, did Churchill spot a chink in Hitler's armor? That's what we'll talk about as the war rages on, sadly. But now, though, with France surrendering, imagine their positive surprise to know that Hitler did not want their entire country. In fact, they could fly their own French flag. Number one, just not in Paris, because that's under French German control now. But number two, they could fly it anywhere they wanted, as long as it wasn't on the coast of the English Channel or in Paris. They, they, in other words, they, the French, basically could have 
all of the southeastern section of the former country. That was theirs literally to use as they saw fit. So because of that, that's what became known as Free France or Vichy France. And if you look that up on Google, just look up V-I-C-H-Y France. That was Free France during the Second World War. They were free to fly their own French flag, have their own form of government. They were free to do it all. As long as they didn't form an alliance with any other world power, and yes, as long as they knowingly surrendered the known whereabouts of any Jews, France could continue to exist, a shell of its existence, admittedly, but they could exist semi-independently. The reason I'm stressing that is because, again, myth immediately flooded in after World War II that the Germans... The, the motto, Adolf Hitler's motto, was the world to uh, Europe today and the world tomorrow. In fact, my father went to his grave still believing that. Despite the number of times I spoke with him and showed him, in some cases, some out-and-out -out proof, Hitler never wanted to conquer the entire world. He knew that that was impossible. The world truly is too big of a place. Plus, it would interfere with his objectives, his number one political ambition, which was the defeat of Bolshevism. So did he want to conquer the Eurasian continent? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And again, even then, though, not all parts of it, just the parts that could threaten his dream for a world-class country of Germany. So with Operation Sea Lion, Hitler waited for Britain's confirmation of her neutrality in the surrendering of her military forces, but with Winston Churchill entering stage center, Hitler was going to be in for the fight of his life, trying to defeat Great Britain. To put this in a little bit of historical perspective, the last time a leader on the continent of Europe successfully put a foot down on the island nation of Great Britain the last time that that was successfully done was by William the Conqueror in the year 1066, 1066. Britain had never been conquered after that. Ironically, she would go on to do the conquering. At the height of Great Britain's power, there are only 22 countries on the world map today that have never flown the British flag. She was unbelievably powerful. Yes, weak right now, especially compared to that of the country of Germany, Nazi Germany. But she was going to fight on nonetheless. That's when Hitler again started, started up, reluctantly started Operation Sea Lion. When I went back up, one reason I say reluctantly is remember, he is salivating. He cannot wait. He's worse than a kid on Christmas morning. He wants to get to Operation Barbarossa. He wants to tear into and destroy the Soviet Union as soon as he is able. Churchill also knew this. And part of the motivation for, for Churchill to continue to resist Hitler is he was pushing the envelope, hoping that Hitler would eventually give up attempting to conquer Great Britain and turn his attention in the opposite direction to the east to begin Operation Barbarossa. Now you might ask, where and how did Winston Churchill know this? 
How was he able in some cases to actually predict what Hitler was going to do next or predict how Hitler would react to something? Because as Churchill had been screaming to world leaders for years, but few would listen, is that Hitler spelled it all out. He spelled it out in that autobiography, Mein Kampf. He talked about his struggle and if given the opportunity, how he would achieve his political, military, and economic ambitions, if only given that opportunity. And those opportunities, unfortunately, were now being granted to him. And he was continuing to carry them out, page by page, paragraph by paragraph, arguably even sentence by sentence, out of Mein Kampf. So when Churchill started bombing England, I back that up, I'm sorry, when Hitler started bombing England, Hitler was gambling that the... British public would immediately grow fearful and put pressure on the British government to acquiesce to Hitler's demands, when in fact the exact opposite happened. The attacks actually united the British. It invigorated their will to fight. Now, please know that is not to take away the unfortunate destructive capability of the German Luftwaffe. These were state-of-the-art planes that barely could be seconded only by that of the Japanese aircraft. State-of-the-art aircraft that had extremely high spe uh, uh, flight speeds for their time, high flight ceilings, able to go in terms of the range before needing to refuel. They were getting longer and longer. These, again, were state-of-the-art machines that Britain didn't have anything close to at this time in the numbers that they would need. So because of that, Churchill was constantly getting updates and each update was worse than the last, that the destructive capability of the Luftwaffe was becoming clearer and clearer day after day as more and more of the strategic and tactical places of importance within Great Britain were being destroyed by the Germans. Churchill needed to do something to get the Germans to back off. To stop bombing was going to be out of the question unless Churchill sued for peace, which wasn't in his vocabulary. It wasn't even in his blood. He needed rather to redirect the German Luftwaffe to attack something that's not of strategic importance. Now, my listeners out there, if you want to think about this a moment, where might that what might that location be? Well, at the top of our heads, we probably would think, well, somewhere out in the countryside, out kind of in the middle of nowhere. Well, exactly. But Church, or Hitler's also smart enough to know that if there's no strategic importance, why would they waste their firepower on that? No, Churchill knew that to redirect Adolf Hitler's fighting power, it was going to be a brutal sacrifice, a true sacrifice on, the, on behalf of the British people. But Churchill knew it had to be done. Reviewing Mein Kampf one more time and the analysis of it by others, Churchill took a gamble. He recruited a little over a dozen beyond brave World War I and post-World War I pilots to get onto planes that would be so heavily loaded with bombs that it might not, the plane might not actually be able to return to England 
before it would run out of fuel. And they were to, under the cover of darkness, fly off the northern coast of Great Britain, over the northern, the North Sea, north of Denmark, down through the Baltic Sea, and over the map of Germany. There were countless military and economic places of importance that Churchill could have forced the British Air Force to bomb. And Churchill chose none of them. Rather, Churchill chose none other than the city of Berlin. Militarily, of no consequence. Economically, sure, it's a big major city, but it's not going to put a dent in Hitler's economic machine. But that's where Churchill wanted them bombed, what, what he wanted bombed. The questions, the derision that Churchill was receiving from his own countrymen, why risk those men's lives? Why waste the firepower, waste the planes, all that just to bomb Berlin? Yes, Churchill said, because it's going to get us, give us the breathing room we need. The mission was started, was a huge success, as many parts of Berlin were bombed back to the Stone Age. Hitler arguably lost his temper for the first time since the war began, having no idea that he was open and so vulnerable to an enemy attack, much less of all the places in Germany they chose to attack his beloved Berlin. As a result, Hitler would attack back in exactly the same way. You destroy my Berlin, Churchill, I'm going to destroy your London. In what became known as the Blitz, Hitler redirected his Luftwaffe to start bombing the city of London, London, England, which is exactly what Churchill wanted because it gave the British the breathing room that they needed in order to be able to rebuild their airfields, their radar, burgeoning radar installations, and prepare for a true retaliatory effort against the country of Germany. How and why, or how and what way does Churchill begin to prepare for that? That's what we'll be listening for in our next podcast. So thank you for listening. Have a great week.